Section 5 of Modern England by Oscar Browning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Book 5. Sir Robert Peel, 1841 to 1853. Book 5, Chapter 1, Afghanistan. Sir Robert Peel, at the outset of his ministry, found himself compelled to provide for a deficiency of revenue of two millions and a half and to take at least some steps in the direction of free trade in corn at this time the poor were paying a large price for their daily bread in order that the farmers of england might derive a supposed advantage of profit while quantities of corn from the baltic and the black sea were kept out of england by an unreasonable duty the prime minister proposed an alteration of what was called the sliding scale that is a set of duties varying with the price of corn in the english market his object being to maintain the price of wheat as nearly as possible at sixty shillings a motion for the repeal of the corn laws was made by the leaders of the anti-corn law league cobden and villiers it was lost by a large majority and the government proposals were easily carried the deficiency in the revenue was made worse by the outbreak of a war in china and the possibility of troubles on the indian frontier sir robert peel determined to deal with the whole matter comprehensively and began that series of financial reforms which continued by his pupil mr gladstone have done much to raise england to her present height of prosperity the chief source of proposed revenue was the income tax at that time new and violently opposed but which has since been found a powerful engine in times of difficulty besides this he revised the whole system of imports simplifying them wherever it was possible and preparing the way for free trade at this time a penny income tax produced three-quarters of a million revenue it now produces a million and a half afghanistan a province on the northwestern frontier of india is approached by two passes from the plains the khyber pass a long and difficult defile leads to jellalabad and the kurd kabul pass still longer and more difficult bars the passage to kabul afghanistan had been occupied by general elphinstone who fearing for his retreat sent general sale to occupy the pass to jellalabad in the meantime he neglected the commonest precaution the afghans excited by some wild rumours rose against him cut off his provisions killed the british envoy by treachery and compelled the army to shameful capitulation no faith was kept by the barbarians deprived of food harassed by treacherous attacks the army dwindled away to a mere handful the women and children had at last to be surrendered to the faithless enemy out of sixteen thousand men who left kabul only one survivor reached the city of jellalabad no insult of this kind has remained long unavenged general pollock marched with eight thousand men through the khyber pass he joined General Sale at Jalalabad, who had defended the city, although it was shaken with a hundred shocks of earthquake. In August 1842, the two armies moved through the pass of Kurd Kabul, 
where their countrymen had perished man by man. The city of Kabul was taken and given up to plunder, and the great bazaar was burned to the ground. Afghanistan was entirely reduced, but the English did not care to retain so useless and so costly a possession. Book Five, Chapter Two, Free Trade the next three years were chiefly occupied with the struggle between protection and free trade, but little progress was made with this question in the session of 1843. The year was taken up with discussions on factory labor, on education, on church rates, with the visit of the Queen to the King of the French, and the excitement at Oxford caused by the defection of some prominent high churchmen to the Church of Rome. It was found that the financial reforms of the previous session had been a brilliant success. Instead of two millions and a half deficit, there was a million and a half surplus after all debts had been paid, and an anticipation of a still larger balance for next year. The emancipation of the Catholics had not succeeded in quieting Ireland. The movement for repeal of the Union was still in full vigor, and O'Connell told a large meeting at Tara that within a year a parliament would be sitting at College Green in Dublin. Another meeting summoned with all the parade of military organization was prohibited by proclamation and prevented by O'Connell. He was nevertheless tried for sedition and condemned by a Protestant jury to imprisonment and fine. The judgment was reversed after a tempestuous scene in the House of Lords, and the acquittal of the great agitator was received with joy throughout Ireland. Little more was heard of O'Connell. He was now grown old and weary, and his followers knew that they would be treated in future with severity or mercy as they deserved it. In the next year the government did an act of justice by increasing the endowment of the Catholic College of Maynooth. In the meantime, events were rapidly moving toward free trade. Sir Robert Peel, assisted by Mr. Gladstone, went on with his financial reforms. He proposed to use the surplus produced by the income tax in reducing the taxes on commodities. A great change was proposed in the sugar duties, wise in the main, but disfigured by traces of protection. The agricultural distress of the year gave the free traders an opportunity of enforcing their views, whilst a new party of young England, led by Mr. Disraeli and Lord John Manners, thought that the landed interests were too heavily taxed already and ought to be relieved. The session of 1845 closed quietly enough. The increased Maynooth grant had been passed, the Jews admitted to municipal offices, the Oregon dispute with the United States arranged, New Zealand pacified. Suddenly an unexpected crisis arose. A disease which entirely destroyed the potato plant appeared first in England and then in Ireland. The whole subsistence of the Irish peasantry was destroyed. Pressure was put upon the ministry to admit foreign corn free of duty. The country was deluged with the free trade tracts of the Anti-Corn Law League. Sir Robert Peel was convinced that protection was no longer tenable but his cabinet would not follow him. Lord Stanley resigned and the ministry broke up. Lord John Russell was unable to form a cabinet, and Sir Robert Peel was induced to take office again. 
it was known that he would meet parliament in eighteen forty six pledged to support the cause of free trade the agitation for the repeal of the corn laws began in manchester towards the end of eighteen thirty six in a season of distress it appeared to some of the most influential members of this rising town that the only remedy lay in free trade and that by artificially keeping up the price of corn the manufacturing interests of the country were sacrificed to the agricultural interests three years later the anti-corn law league was formed its most prominent members from the first were mr cobden and mr bright who sacrificed their worldly prosperity in a great measure to the work of converting their countrymen to the principles of true economy very large sums of money were collected for the purposes of the league a free trade hall was built in manchester in eighteen forty three the times acknowledged that the league was a great fact and compared it to the wooden horse by which the greeks were secretly brought within the walls of troy at the end of eighteen forty five it was stronger than ever in men money and enthusiasm on the assembling of parliament in eighteen forty six the queen's speech and the address in reply to it indicated the coming change sir robert peel rose immediately afterwards and honestly confessed his alteration of opinion he had observed he said during the last three years one that wages do not vary with the price of food and that with high prices you do not necessarily have high wages two that employment high prices and abundance contribute directly to the diminution of crime three that by the gradual removal of protection industry had been promoted crime had been diminished and morality improved sir robert peel was followed by mr disraeli who expressing the passion of the protectionist country gentleman violently assailed the minister in february sir robert peel announced a fixed duty on corn for three years and afterwards its entire abolition the free traders attempted to dispense with this delay but they were beaten by a large majority and the bill passed easily the duke of wellington secured its acceptance in the house of lords he had become wiser since the reform bill and his conduct on this occasion compensated for the errors of his previous career the protectionists determined on their revenge a bill for the suppression of crime in ireland gave the opportunity lord george bentinck assailed the ministers with violence and they were defeated by a majority of seventy-three on the very evening that the corn bill passed the house of lords the whigs who had assisted sir robert peel in carrying free trade now joined the protectionists in turning him out ministers had nothing left them but to resign and lord john russell was ordered to form a cabinet the new ministry did not do much in the session of eighteen forty seven they were obliged to propose a second time the measure for the pacification of ireland which had brought about the defeat of their opponents a bill for shortening the hours of labour in factories passed without difficulty this year was also marked by the death of o'connell at genoa on his way to rome and by the voluntary dissolution of the anti-corn law league book five chapter three the charter although no great question was before the nation 
parliament had been dissolved the result of the new elections was a slight increase of strength to the government it was proceeding to consider simple measures of practical reform when a new and unexpected danger demanded its attention a revolution which broke out in france in eighteen forty eight overthrew the monarchy of louis philippe and established a republic in its place the contagion spread throughout europe in every country thrones were tottering and england was not exempt from the general disorder the discontent of the irish increased and smith o'brien took the place of o'connell in england the excitement was shown by the agitation of the chartists the chartists derived their name from the sketch of a new reform bill which had obtained the title of the people's charter it contained six principal points one universal suffrage two annual parliaments three vote by ballot four abolition of property qualification for members of parliament five the payment of members and six equal electoral districts this had been finally drawn up in eighteen thirty eight but for many years the agitation for it was obscured by other matters in eighteen thirty nine a petition containing a million and a quarter names was presented to parliament in eighteen forty an attack made by the chartists on newport was crushed by the firmness of the mayor in eighteen forty seven the chartists put out their full strength and gained several seats in parliament and especially the election of their leader fergus o'connor for nottingham inspired by their successes the chartists determined to hold a monster meeting on the tenth of april on kennington common from this place they were to march and present a huge petition to the house of commons they even talked of imitating france in the establishment of a republic the government determined to prevent the march soldiers were posted in all parts of london by the duke of wellington one hundred and seventy thousand special constables were sworn in the public offices the bank and post office were armed to the teeth all their designs ended in failure the meeting was far smaller than had been expected the march was given up and the petition of five million and a half of names was found to contain only a third of this number and those mainly fictitious the movement could not survive the ridicule of exposure book five chapter four the great exhibition the chief objects of discontent which existed when our period opened had now been removed the disabilities of catholics had been taken away the corn laws had been repealed the irish had been pacified rebellion in england had been crushed the country entered upon a career of peaceful progress in eighteen forty nine the navigation laws which had been passed by cromwell's government in sixteen fifty one and which had first transferred the carrying trade from holland to this country were repealed this was a legitimate extension of the principles of free trade at this time a dispute arose in an ecclesiastical question which was a forerunner of many similar discussions in later years mr gorham had been presented to a living in the diocese of exeter the bishop took the unusual course of examining his opinions and refused to institute him 
because he was unsound on the question of baptismal regeneration. The Court of Arches, a court reserved for the trial of ecclesiastical matters, supported the bishop, but its decision was reversed by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, a lay court of appeal which had lately received power of revising the judgments of the ecclesiastical courts. The Low Church Party was rejoiced at the freedom allowed it. The High Church Party, which had recently been strengthened by a movement to increase its power begun at Oxford, was angry first at the slight throne on an important doctrine, and secondly, that the civil courts should ultimately decide on church matters. However, a bill introduced to alter the constitution of the court was rejected by the House of Commons. In this year, 1850, also belongs the commencement of an attempt to make the universities more useful to the whole nation by the appointment of a royal commission. Party spirit was hushed for a time by the death of Sir Robert Peel. Some slight excitement was caused by the appointment by the Pope of Roman Catholic bishops under an Archbishop of Westminster and the division of England into dioceses. It produced, however, much less effect than was anticipated. All thoughts were concentrated on the great exhibition to be held in Hyde Park in 1851. The design and execution of the scheme were entirely the work of Prince Albert. A building of a new kind, made of glass and iron, was invented as if for the very purpose. It contained the industrial products of all nations, and it was hoped that peaceful competition had rendered the horrors of war forever impossible. The enterprise was a brilliant success. It fulfilled the hopes of its projectors, and the profits wisely invested have been the means of promoting art and culture throughout England. As if in mockery of human designs, this hope for peace was succeeded by a destructive war. Louis Napoleon, nephew of the great emperor, president of the French Republic since 1848, had just made himself emperor of the French. It was feared that a military power so near us might drag us into an unwise policy. Lord John Russell was succeeded as minister by Lord Derby, but a dissolution of Parliament brought back the old ministry with Lord Aberdeen at its head and Mr. Gladstone as Chancellor of the Exchequer. His budget inaugurated a new series of financial reforms. He formed a plan of reducing the national debt, while he retained the income tax in order to make it easier to tax more equally the chief products of daily consumption. A dispute had arisen between Russia and Turkey, ostensibly about the guardianship of the holy places in Jerusalem. But the root of the quarrel lay far deeper. Turkey, a decaying power, had become more and more unfit to govern Christians. Russia was deeply interested in protecting the Slavonic races under the Turkish rule, who were of the same blood and origin as herself. She wished also to extend her power to the Dardanelles. If great calmness had been shown on both sides, peace might have been preserved. But the Russian Emperor Nicholas was violent and impetuous, our ambassador at Constantinople was a sworn enemy of Russia. A war was necessary to the emperor of the French for the consolidation of his throne. The spirit of both nations was gradually roused. 
the Russians entered the Danubian principalities and burned the Turkish fleet at Sinope. Lord Aberdeen strained every nerve for peace. Lord Palmerston, the Home Secretary, threatened to resign unless strong measures were adopted. The country approached nearer and nearer to the brink of war. End of section 5